It's uh, a great joy that we can gather together and uh, appreciate folks uh, sharing video feeds as you share and pass the peace to one another and hope that in, uh, again, in a less than ideal circumstance, we're still able to embrace uh, the core of what it means to be God's people as we extend and encourage uh, the peace of God. It is uh, in that sense of this less than ideal circumstance, we enter into Holy Week. We enter into uh, that through the wonderful Sunday of Palm Sunday. And uh, again, it just doesn't feel the same. Uh, there are not uh, kids running around with uh, palm branches and uh, the temptation to use those palm branches against one another. Uh, and then who will be the first one to hit somebody with a palm branch and then the escalation of the palm branch conflicts. And then, of course, when they get turned into crosses later on in the children's lesson and they come back out and they've been folded into these beautiful little crosses, it is uh, a day when we remember Christ riding into Jerusalem. And it is a day in which there is a lot of complication, a lot of uh, stories coming together, a lot of promises being fulfilled, and in many ways, the beginning of much work that God is doing in and through his people to restore his creation as he affirms and asserts himself as the ruler and answer to the covenant promises of his people. So this morning we're going to reflect a little bit on uh, the read, a part of the reading from Matthew as Jesus rides in, particularly on the passage uh, from Zechariah that reflects on Zechariah 9:9, which is the the prayer, uh, the praise of the folks as they grab uh, the palm branches and begin to throw them in front of Jesus and shout together. So let me uh, just take a minute and read again. Uh, a, a section of Matthew 21. Hear now God's word. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouting, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are restoring heaven and earth. Lord, that what we feel now so acutely because of the pandemic, the physical separation, Lord, you are restoring and even this morning utilizing the reality of our spiritual union with you and with one another to in this time give us a measure of what it means to be whole. And we pray, Lord, that we would delight in the promised future hope when the division we feel so acutely now is removed for all eternity and that we are one spiritually and physically. We pray that even now as we reflect on this wonderful passage, that you would encourage our hearts, and that we would learn again, Lord, what it means to be your children, 
to know your heartbeat, to know what you would have us do and how we might rely on you to do it. We pray that whatever said this morning would be beneficial and true, and whatever is not true and useful for your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. Suppose in some ways that's sort of an awkward prayer when my opening illustration starts with a Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, I don't know if that's something worth remembering or not, but for some of us who remember 1985, uh, there was a great movie uh, called The Pale Rider, and in that movie, a classic uh, storyline of the western drifter riding into a town oppressed by some uh, rich landowner who wanted to drive all the small uh, claim holders off their land. And they were in need of someone to save them, someone to defeat the enemy uh, that was trying to take their land. And of course, in classic uh, Clint Eastwood style, he rides in. It's a wonderful, snowy setting up in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, in this particular film, as he rides in, uh, he rides in on a pale Appaloosa horse, and the people in one of the houses are reading, of course, from Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, and I saw a pale horse, and on it was a rider, and his name was Death, and Hades followed after him. And of course, that was, you know, a stirring moment in the film. And what Clint Eastwood does is he does bring judgment on those who were uh, trying to steal these poor folks' gold, uh, gold mines and their, their little claims. And that's usually what we think of. When we think of a great redeemer, whether it is uh, at the head of a great army that is liberating us, as so many towns experienced in World War II, whether it is uh, the classic Western story of the single gunslinger or the seven, magnificent seven, who go and save a town. We want the bad guys to get their justice right then in the space of about an hour and 45 to two hours. We want to see the conflict. We want to see the hero. We want to see resolution. And that's the sum total of what we expect. The challenge is that as Jesus rides in, if we have that expectation, we are likely to be frustrated because Jesus is that great redeemer, and yet the means by which he accomplishes redemption seem to miss the point. That is to say that as those people began to lay those palms down, as they began to reflect on what Jesus was doing, which for them absolutely. They were thinking Zechariah 9. They were thinking Psalm 118, which is Hosanna, to, which is the passage uh, that they're quoting. And they're thinking about their, their history. 200 years before Judas Maccabee had ridden in on a big charger with a large army behind him, having driven out a, another oppressive uh, overlord from Jerusalem, and for a hundred years the Maccabees ruled as Jewish kings in Jerusalem. And folks remembered that. They told those stories. Herod himself had married a Maccabee in an attempt to legitimize his kingdom, uh, to draw back to that line of, of one who had risen and who had ridden into Jerusalem and defeated the enemies. And that meant immediately eliminating the oppressive 
forces at that moment. And in a time like this, where we feel the oppression of a broken and fallen world, where the COVID-19 has driven us into our homes, where we feel isolation, we need redemption. We need saving. We need the illness to be beaten back so that we can return to our normal lives. We want our hero to ride in and to address the needs that we see to be most immediate and most acute. Jesus's ministry never minimizes those present powers and illnesses that are afflicting his people. And yet at the same time, he calls us to look deeper, deeper at our own needs, and therefore to reflect more profoundly on the fullness of what it means to have one who comes, who rides in. And in Jesus's case, not in this image on a white horse, but on the colt, on a donkey, a symbol of peace, not fundamentally war. And so I want us to take a moment and reflect that a lot of those pictures from things like the Pale Rider, the more we embrace those images, the harder it is and frustrating it is often for us to see what Jesus is doing causes us uh, a measure of, of doubt and frustration because those prayers that we offer, uh, those prayers and pleas we have for healing, for God to cut this season short, for him to ride in and defeat the illness, uh, defeat uh, the sin around us, his timetable seems to be different. He seems to be doing things differently, and it causes us frustration. It reveals to some degree whether or not we think God is there to serve us, and to what degree we are a part of God's redemption in serving the world. So this morning, we'll address why we have those concerns. First, asking the question, which I think we all ask, in those moments when it doesn't seem that our, see, our prayers are being heard and answered, does the Father know my deepest needs? And then, as that question develops, how does trust in the Father cause me to reflect more deeply, do I know my deepest needs? And so the first honest question, which should not be dismissed, does the Father know my deepest needs? As we begin to contemplate it, does it move us into a season of trust where we're able to say, then, at my core, do I know my deepest needs? and how God answers them. As Jesus rides in, he is the ambassador. He is the king appointed by the Father. And in Psalm 118, he shows that the Father does know. As the folks sing Hosanna, which means, save us, we pray. As the people are celebrating Jesus's entry, they are asking him for salvation, to save them, they think, mostly from the Romans and the tax collectors. And so they pray Psalm 118, verse 25, save us. 
But if you read the whole of Psalm 118, which Jesus has, and he's going to quote later on in Matthew 21, verse 42, he also knows our pain, not because the Father's told him, not because he's heard it in our prayers, but because he too has been rejected. He knows what it is to suffer the pain and the brokenness of this world. Psalm 118 22 is that famous verse, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. But we can't run to the capstone part without remembering that there is a part where he was rejected. He knows what that feels like. He knows our deepest needs. But he also shows in his work that we need to understand our deeper needs, that he brings fulfillment, that he brings comfort to. We have a king who doesn't merely ride in to save us from the immediate crisis, but we have a king who heals us body and spirit. We have a king who understands our broken and sinful world, because he lived in and through it. And yet at the same time, we have a king who sits at the right hand, having passed through all of that sin and that death, and now sits at the right hand. Those are comforting words, but they can feel a little abstract. And so how do we then pray? If I'm not supposed to pray, just Lord, heal me, and if he doesn't, then get frustrated with the fact that he's doing it a different way, how do we pray in a season where we so really and truly and immediately feel the need for a Savior, for one to protect us and to heal us and a broken world around us? The Bible encourages us to engage in lament. And lament is something that, quite frankly, I don't know that I'm terribly familiar with. I don't know that I have much experience in meditating and praying through and engaging in a healthy notion of lament. But thankfully, there are wonderful godly people who have thought about it. And as we close this morning, I want to give you uh, from an article by a man by the name of Dr. Glenn Packham, which we'll put up on the website so that you can read. But he just recently wrote an article giving us five ways to look at lament. And I want to share those with you so that as you pray and as you wrestle with the Lord, both knowing that some of our immediate prayer requests for physical health and restoration may not be answered in the way that we want them to, but at the same time, our deepest and most profound needs are how do we pray? So the first component of lament is that it is first and foremost praise. And that seems rather odd, but uh, Glenn points out in his article that the section of the Psalms that have the most laments in them, the Psalms of lament, are actually under the heading of the Hebrew word for praise, tehim. And so in the scriptural author's mind, inspired by the Spirit, lament 
is not first and foremost seen as complaining by God, though there are ways we can complain, but that lament is seen as fundamentally praise. And the difference is this. When the children of Israel are in the desert and they doubt the character and nature of God, they say things like, you brought us into the wilderness and now we're going to die of thirst or die of uh, starvation. We have a God like all the other gods, one of those fickle Greek and Egyptian gods who loves to play havoc with the lives of his followers or her followers. They doubted the character of God. The complaint was that God's character was lacking. But lament is praise because it assumes the good character of God. To pray to a God who sends his son to ride into the city of Jerusalem, which he prays over and which is about to turn against him and stone him, is to pray in line with the character of God. God, we know you care enough about this suffering to enter into it. We know you care about it more than we do, and we're going to talk to you about the pain and the reality we face in this moment, and it is a form of praise because we know it's in your character and in your wisdom to address it. And so first, lament is not complaint because it is in line with his character not doubting the character of God. Second of all, and logically, it becomes, of course, a proof of relationship. We're not asking uh, a fickle deity who is far off. We are engaging in a relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives within us. The Son came in the midst of this world, and it is the Father who loved us enough to send His Son and who made creation for His glory and our good. We're asking our Heavenly Father to act on our behalf and to be a part of our actions to be like Him as we care for others. As we lament, it is proof of a relationship with a God who identifies and is connected moment by moment in the real pain of this world. It's moment by moment suffering and it's deeper eternal needs to be removed from suffering. And so first of all, lament is praise because it comes alongside the character of God to address sin and brokenness. Secondly, it is proof of relationship because we have a God we can wrestle with and partner with in the broken and fallenness of this world. Thirdly, it is a pathway to intimacy with God. And that makes sense, right? Because if we are worshiping a God whose character is to address brokenness, if we enter into a relationship with that, as our Heavenly Father calls us to pray, as we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It becomes a pathway to intimacy. What we uh, understand is that the covenant God who created us is calling us to know the depth of who he is and who we were created to be. It is just simply true that one of the ways that intimacy is built, not the only way that intimacy is built, but one of the ways that intimacy is built is through sharing suffering together. And God redeems suffering by allowing that to be a means of growing intimacy with Him, to share His heart and to have our hearts transformed so that we share with Him 
the pain of this world. It's what Paul's talking about in Galatians when he talks about bearing one another's burdens. It is the deep reality that we are intimately aware and sharing the pain of our brothers and sisters, even as God himself shares in our pain. Fourthly, it is a lament in the Psalms is a prayer for God to act. Now see how we've gotten, it's the fourth thing before we think about God acting. We started with the idea that lament is first and foremost an opportunity to celebrate and praise God because of his character. Then we move into the opportunity of relationship. Then we move into a deeper understanding of intimacy. And then, then it makes sense for us to begin to contemplate and to pray for God to act. As we go through the litany of things that are wrong and broken in our world and in our own hearts, we get to a point where we are asking God to act on our behalf. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it was that God would act in this, this world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is first and foremost, of course, God's actions. And we pray for his actions on our behalf, even as we pray today that he would cut short this pandemic. And then lastly, Lament is participation in the pain and suffering of others, which we've already started to talk about in some of the other points. When we pray the Psalms of Lament, and some of them are very, very difficult. Some of them have language of justice that often make us uncomfortable, and that's a good thing. We should never be comfortable with the unvarnished images of what happens when people ignore and reject the mercy and grace of God and act not in line with God's character, but as scripture often points to, in line with something beneath and subhuman in its character. Character that is willing to put others in danger for their good. It is subhuman to be willing to take from others so that we might survive at their suffering. And so when we enter into these psalms, some of them, the lament psalms, are very, very hard to read. Part of that is trusting that that reality of God's justice, how dark sin really is, and how it impacts the world around it and what it's going to take for God to cut it out of his world. We saw it in the cross. We see that on the cross, all of those darkest psalms of lament are poured out on Christ. He's beaten. He's stripped. He's nailed to a cross and left to die slowly. The justice because of what evil is, there is no Disney way to address it. But we don't distance ourselves from that pain and suffering any more than we ask God to distance himself from our pain and suffering. 
That fifth part of lament is not a way of distancing ourselves, but actually embracing the needs of those around us. That as we pray for evil to be undone and justice to be done, whether it's in our physical health or in all of the different ways in which sin and death rob us of a life of peace and a life of joy, or would seek to uh, deny us joy, we enter in with Jesus by the Holy Spirit into the pain and laments of others. We become those that engage in the way that we want God to engage with us. Not just as a distant miracle worker, not just as one who uh, thinks good thoughts about us from a distance, but those who are willing to weep with those who weep, touch those who are untouchable, love those who are unlovable. We enter in. But the answer to those laments is God using his grace through us to care for others. Because we have been cared for. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He rides in calling his disciples, empowering his disciples. They had asked just the day before who could sit at his right hand and who could sit at his left. It seemed as if riding in next to the great gunslinger, the great king, would give one a position of power and authority and prestige. And in the economy of God, it does. But to the world, it looks like lament. Like people who are going to be stuck dealing with all of the pain and suffering. That would be unbearable. If the lament over sin and death didn't provide, as this article unpacks for us, an opportunity for praise, an opportunity of deep relationship, a pathway to true intimacy, the delight of seeing God act, and the privilege of acting with him in line with his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that we can lament, that we don't have to hide our feelings. We don't have to hide our fears. We don't have to hide our needs. Lord, that we can lay them all out before you and trust you to take them in, to take us in. And in the midst of that, Lord, we might discover how you meet the needs that we have in the moment but Lord, that we might even build deeper trust and understanding that you have met the needs that we have for eternity. We thank you for this. We pray that you would bless your people, keep them safe, even as they serve and care for their families and one another. In Christ's name, amen.